blindfolds. And we were talking, we were processing that about what made that game hard. And one of the things, of course, that makes that game hard is you don't know. It's, sometimes it's hard to hear which know which voice to listen to, because you've got to, in, among all the voices out there, you've got to only listen to one that's going to take you where you need to go. And there's all these uh, competing voices. When I was younger, I was a uh, a uh, paper boy, and uh, uh, a lot of my uh, a lot of my growing up was uh, learning things being a paper boy. And uh, you'd go around and uh, in, my, in the old days, you'd deliver the papers and then you'd have to collect. You got to get the money, so you're going door to door and asking for the collection. And uh, one house in particular was a, a Mr. Torpy, and uh, Mr. Torpy, uh, I. I never met a man like Mr. Torpy. He was he was very strange, very strange. Always wanted my attention when I came by, and I, I had never met an alcoholic before. Mr. Torpy was an alcoholic. He was uh, he was just loaded every time I came to visit, and he wanted to tell me stories. And I didn't know what was going on except that Mr. Torpy was very odd. And uh, and we knew that his odd behavior played out because sometimes he would uh, again become inebriated in the middle of the day, and. Uh, and when he did that, oftentimes uh, there were barking dogs next door. And for some reason, when he was inebriated, he thought he was a preacher. And he would start out and, and he would start preaching at the dogs to tell them in the name of the Lord to, be, to shut up, to shut their yaps, to be quiet. And so, well, he's very loud and the dogs are barking. And it's a next thing you know, people walking by, a little crowd gathered and uh, trying to figure out what's going on, what's happening here. And this would ha this happened a few times. It was kind of strange. And he always would be angry that the crowd was gathering, didn't want to listen to anybody else. He had his own agenda. And then one time, while the crowd was outside, watching this spectacle unfold, he grabbed the phone, and he took it next to the window, and he said, Hello, God, this is John you got to get rid of all these people. They're, they're bothering me. So he wanted us to really hear this conversation with God on the phone so he could go back to his preaching and doing whatever he was doing. And so uh, as he's talking on the phone to God, uh, a friend of mine, we were about 12 years old at the time, he said, what if God gave him a call? What do you mean? What if God gave him a call? He's on the phone talking to God. And he started walking the other direction, going to his house. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to give him a call. I said, no, you're not. You can't do that. No, no, no. Yeah, I am. I'm going to do it. And he got the phone book out. He looked him up. He found it. And I, no, stop. Don't do it. Don't do it. And he said, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So he got dialed the phone. Hello? Hello, John. This is God. <laughs> well, I could only hear one half of the conversation as I was standing there, and I expected some kind of outburst and something to get kind of out of. Next thing I know, this 12-year-old friend of mine is counseling the alcoholic. And, uh, well, I know, John, I, I know it would be hard to stop, but, but you can do it, because I'll be with you, and I'll help you. Okay, I know it's hard, John, but, but you can do it. Okay? And after about five minutes of that, he hung up on the phone. I said, what happened? I said, he actually listened to me. We had a conversation, and I just, you heard, told me he could do it. 
Now, I'm not saying that conversation did it, but I'll only say this. I never saw him drunk again, ever. Uh, every time I went to collect and every time we passed in the neighborhood, there was no more preaching to the dogs. Are you listening to the right voice? It wasn't the passers-by, but somewhere mixed in there, he needed to hear the voice of God telling him what he needed to do. And I think he did it. Now that's the question that uh, came up in our uh, games today. Are you listening to the right voice? That's the question you're going to take home with you as you go back to wherever you came from. Are you listening to the right voice? Uh, so as we come before God's word tonight, let's, uh, let's make sure we're listening, not to me, uh, but to hear what God is saying. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your kindness and mercy to us in Christ. Uh, we swim in an ocean of your grace every day. Help us to know what it means to be deeply, deeply loved. And Father, help us to live lives of deepest gratitude, for we understand what we've been rescued from. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to press on in First uh, Peter tonight. And First uh, Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 4 to 12, we're going to look again about the... God's perspective on the church and what it means for us to be a living temple. And as we come to the opening uh, verses here, we see the people of God as a temple. You don't maybe look like it, but you are a temple of God. And uh, this is how it starts out. It says, as you come to him, that is Christ, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is one of the themes uh, of the Bible, is the people as a, a temple of God. And you're probably familiar with a lot of those themes in the New Testament. Uh, the fact that we're living stones, and 1 Corinthians talks about us being a, a temple. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 6. In uh, Revelation 21, 22, some of these verses uh, you may be familiar with. There we go. Um, but uh, the image I want you to come with here is we think about the people of God as a temple. Again, the Old Testament has a literal temple, which is the place of worship. That's the place where God's presence dwells. And now... The New Testament tells us, well, that was just that was just an illustration, an illustration of what the real temple is. And then the real temple isn't made with physical stones. The real temple is made with living stones. And, uh, and so you are a part of that living temple that God is constructing, this great construction process that is going on. And by the way, one of the cool things about this, this construction process, when the temple is completed... When the tabernacle, when God leads his people uh, in the wilderness, he leads them with a pillar of cloud uh, uh, by day and fire by night, right? It's in the fire and the cloud that God shows his presence among his people. Then uh, when the tabernacle is built, uh, then the, the, the tabernacle is filled with the glory cloud of God in Exodus 40. As you move forward and finally the permanent temple is built, again, after Solomon dedicates the temple, the glory cloud, again, fills the temple and drives the priests out because the glory of God is in there. 
Okay? And you got this weird thing happening in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, right? So the Spirit comes down, and what happens? These tongues of flame rest on people's heads. Now, is that the weirdest thing in the world? What, what's a tongue of flame coming and resting on a person? What's that about? It's exactly what the Old Testament was about. It's explaining now God is visibly showing. Remember how my, my glory was with my people in the tabernacle, in the temple? Now you are my temple. You are the living stones. And now the glory of God rests upon you. Uh, what an amazing uh, way that God puts together this story to help us understand and to see these Old Testament illustrations that point us now to the realities that you and I live in. Well, it says that in this construction project that Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. He is uh, the living stone. Let's think about that for a minute. For in scripture it says, See, and I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, if you believe that stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and the stone that causes men to stumble, and the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Um, Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and the cornerstone is the, the stone in the building that gives shape to the rest of the of the project, and uh, I was uh, I was asking I was actually uh, talking about this with an engineer in my church, and uh, and I said and all I knew was I said well I know that the chief cornerstone gives shape to the rest of the building but uh, exactly how that I'm not an engineer I'm not sure how that works, and so he explained to me how it works, and in fact we don't have chief cornerstones today, we have this thing called a laser. And what the laser, what the engineer does is that the engineer finds the point at which every other point in the building is going to be referenced off of. And now uh, uh, the, the laser shoots a beam to a spot. And instead of guessing, you know in reference to that one point exactly where every other part of the diagram is supposed to be. It gives shape to the entire building. That's what that little machine does. Um, that's what Jesus does. Jesus gives shape to the church. He's the cornerstone. He's the one that guides all of the angles and, and creates the kind of church that Jesus wants to create. Um, and so, uh, as we think about that, as Jesus takes you and you and you and you and you and you living stones and he, and he knits you together, he's building you together into this great construction project, uh, everything is to take reference from him. He's the one who gives it shape. Um, now, what the scripture was saying there is that uh, this, people have certain reactions to that. Uh, Jesus, the stone, he's a rock uh, of offense to some. It's, Peter says that for those who trust in him, he is precious. And, and you'll never be put to shame. What a tremendous hope that is. What a, this is when we talk about the promises of God, Again, you've got to know the promises of God, then you've got to claim the promises of God during those hard times in your life. And this is one of those promises of God. The promise of God is that when you cast yourself upon the stone, and you cast yourself upon Christ, you will not be put to shame. If you humble yourself before Jesus, you will never be put to shame. Uh, if, if Jesus is precious to you, 
men know that you are precious to Jesus. Uh, Jesus has, has worked that in your heart. For those who reject him, the stone works in a very different way. And it causes men to fall, and, uh, and Jesus becomes a stumbling block. Later on, Jesus says there are really two things. You can either cast yourself upon him for refuge, or you will be crushed by him in judgment. There are these two reactions to Jesus. Uh, he's a stumbling block. As you, uh, whoever goes on the Mount Baldy hike tomorrow, uh, you know about stumbling blocks, the stone that's in just the wrong place. By the way, did everybody notice that those stairs are funky over there? Yes. I tripped on this morning. How many of you tripped on that stair at least once? Every time. <laughs> what is the deal about that? Okay, thank you. Um, you know, why, now, why would they, why would people do that, right? It's the wrong, come on, make that right. Every, every, in fact, I did it, and I watched Kelly, and she did it too. Everybody, everybody's stumbling upon that. Well, who, who has not stumbled? Show off. All right. Show off. Uh, you know what I have to say to that? Here's what I have to say to you. The week's not over yet. The week's, yes. Do you have an extra sheet? Any extra sheets? There's a few uh, here. We don't have them. Extra sheets. Now, I want to think about this for a minute because in the in the life of the church, there are so many things that I can say, well, what causes people to stumble? And there are so many things that cause people to stumble in the church or trying to get people into your church or people who don't know the gospel or don't know Christ. They stumble over so many things trying to get into our churches. And this is something I want you to think about. This might be good for blog time. What, what really are the stumbling blocks that prevent people from maybe coming to your church? or prevent people from uh, coming to Christ? Uh, is there something about the church? Is there something about us as Christians? Is there something about what they perceive Christians to be that, uh, that makes them say, thanks, but no thanks? I'm not interested in that. Um, there are so many things that, uh, that can become stumbling blocks, but I've become more and more convinced that this is the central gospel question. I'm not saying all these other things aren't important. I'm not saying what kind of music and how your worship is structured and what your doctrine uh, of other things is. Those things all have their place. They're all very important. We've talked about some wonderful, very important doctrine this week. But if I had to boil it down to one thing, it's this question. Who is Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? And this ends up being a problem sometimes because, again, we, the church can get to be about something else. Uh, see, in my generation, the church could easily get to be about politics and about having the right political views. And we created a church for a good number of years where uh, if you didn't have the right political views, you would not feel welcome. And we've worked very, very hard to try to change the atmosphere of the church where that is not the first thing that we greet people with. That's not going to be the thing that we, that we want to be a stumbling block in the life of the church. Um, I want you to think about that. What are the things... If you invited your friend who doesn't go to church to come to your church, what would be the stumbling block? And this is the challenge of the gospel. You can think about that for blog time tonight. This is the challenge of the gospel is to make Jesus the question. Who is Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Because people like to, again, get distracted on all kinds of other things. Uh, so if you can stick to that, I think that's very, very 
uh, scripture. Now, once we understand who Jesus is, Jesus communicates truth to us, and Jesus uh, sees the world a certain way and invites us into his worldview, and things will change later on. But uh, well, to paraphrase Jesus, what would it profit a man if he understands all of his doctrine down to the finest detail but does not embrace Jesus as precious? Well, it not do any good. Think about this. Whose theology is better? Yours or the devil? Ours. The devil's. The devil understand he has seen God. He understands the glory of the Father. He has been around for a very long time. He understands how the world works, how creation works, and yet he chooses to be in rebellion against the truth. It isn't that Satan is, uh, doesn't understand truth, it's that he doesn't embrace and, and live out truth. Uh, think about the book of James. James says, he talks about practical faith, and he says, you believe God is one. Your, your doctrine is straight. Big deal, the devil believes that. Okay. Good doctrine, as critical as it is, always must begin with the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Um, and then once we have embraced Jesus, we have a new identity. Uh, it says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You have a brand new identity. And you'll notice something uh, in this new identity the words that are used here, uh, those are all words directly out of the Old Testament to describe Israel. Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, a particular people, a chosen people. Uh, these are the names that God gave to his people, Israel. And so you have a new identity. The New Testament says that when you come to Christ, and when you become a part of God's family, you inherit a history and a story. And that story goes all the way back uh, to the beginning pages of the Bible, uh, that you belong to God's people. And that story becomes your story. The New Testament is very explicit. If you have faith in Christ, you're a son of Abraham. The New Testament is very explicit. When you become a Christian, you're engrafted into Israel. You're a true Jew in Christ. And so you have this brand new, this is what we call, by the way, covenant theology, a very important part of what we call covenant theology. That your story doesn't begin in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes down like flames of fire. Your story uh, begins in the book of Genesis, all the way back to Adam and Eve, and the promise that God gave to Eve that he would send a redeemer through her seed. That's the promise that you are a part of, all the way back. You are the chosen people. That's, by the way, the flag of, of Israel is a part of your name. Uh, royal priesthood, uh, a holy nation, people belonging to God. You see those uh, in the Old Testament. By the way, this is very, very significant. I, I don't know if you're uh, like me. I, uh, I don't know my... Uh, uh, we've been doing a little bit of genealogy. We can only trace it back so far. And uh, on the current side, we don't know where the currents has come from. Why do I want to know that? 
And it's a, it's a, it's, but it is. It's something I'm curious about. I'd like to know. That's, I want to know kind of what my story is. What's the story of my people? Uh, where did they come from? How, how did they get here? How did I get to the point where I'm at in this part of the story? I want to, I want to know that. But I can only take it so far back. And uh, and so far, we can't get back past Pennsylvania. Uh, where did those, where do those immigrants come from? Um, well. The good news is that we have an identity. I have an identity, and my identity is in Christ. Uh, and I have a story, and I have a story that goes all the way back to Abraham, who started the nation, goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, who, who uh, the promise was given to of a, of a seed who would be born, who would bring redemption. Um, now, but the scripture says this also as we live out this life. You, you have an identity, uh, but you also have a problem. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Um, as aliens and strangers in the world. In the Old Testament, again, uh, there are nation tribes who, who populate the land. And, uh, and if you're going to survive outside of your own tribe, you're living as an alien. Uh, you're living among people who aren't your people. And, and by the way, the story of the Bible is an incredible story of, of how God says, you were an alien in Egypt. Now you need to be kind to those who are an alien among you. And uh, so there is this inside-outside mentality. And you know what that's like, right? Every one of you know what it means to feel like an insider, what it, what it feels like to be an outsider. Some of you came here this week, and you've been here before, and you kind of know the routine, you know a few people, and you're an insider, you feel good, you feel good. And there, who are the first timers here? Yeah, a lot of you. And as you come here, you don't know the routine, and you're not sure about the food, and you're not sure how things work, and we're still not sure about the food. But we're, you know, hey, there are people starving around the world, just remember that. That's what my mom always told me. There are people starving in Biafra. I know, and that's what I told my mom, too, and it doesn't. So they They would. They would eat it. But you live here as aliens. And, and again, what does that mean? This, this world as it is is not your home. Uh, your home is a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells and uh, where you run and don't get tired. Uh, uh, there is uh, sin is, is wiped away. Every tear is wiped away. There is no more sadness, uh, only peace and joy. And that is the land in which we all aspire to. It is not heaven uh, on a cloud playing a harp, uh, singing with the heavenly angels. It is a renewed earth that is not just as real as this earth. It's more real because it's the way it was intended to be because the earth, too, has been renewed. Uh, but until then, until then, the Bible says you're you're a pilgrim, you're a wanderer, you're you're on your way to that final place, and as such, you're an alien. This world, as it is, is not your home. How do you live as an alien? Well, this is how He says to live: to to subdue sin in your life, to be an example to those around you, to to be living proof to the world around us that there is something about us. Now, this gets back to this living stone stuff. That in the church, we are we're supposed to be something special, something unique, that we, we are a family and a fellowship that has a magnetism 
uh, that draws people to us. And when we fail in that calling, um, we're failing in, in the, one of the central issues of the gospel, uh, to, to model the love of, of Christ to those around us. So you're an alien. That's <laughs> the only alien clipboard I have. Uh, I've got one of the Mars rover guys on Mars. Uh, yeah. 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 This, uh, okay, the most exciting picture of the week, an alien. Uh, oh, bonus points if you can tell me what that comes from. That's the game with Faison. Metro. Yeah, it's, it's a what? Yeah, it's, it's a woman. woman. It's a woman. It's a woman. Well, I bet you feel pretty stupid right now. Well, if I say it's an alien, it's my PowerPoint, and it is. <laughs> of course it is. Okay, the Bible speaks yeah. of the world. Uh, oftentimes we hear the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. What that is is, again, the, the pull of sin in our lives to do the wrong things. And, and we feel that pull. We've talked about that. And this is one of the things we want to help kind of equip you this week, is to say, well, what would it mean to, to live for Christ? What would it mean to overcome that? To live as an alien and actually live in a way that is compelling to the world around us. Uh, this is a part of your calling. Uh, in the first, uh, in, the, uh, in Barry's workshop, uh, Barry was talking about this dynamic of, of the awareness of God's holiness increasing and the awareness of your sin at the same time increasing. And that is the most thoroughly biblical thing. I just wanted to say amen, amen, amen. And notice how the cross, again, had to get bigger. Your understanding of God's grace has to get bigger. You understand how, how holy God is and how sinful I am and what a big gospel I need. I'm of the Dutch Reformed tradition, and the way that they describe that same dynamic is they use three words in their catechism, guilt, grace, and gratitude. The, the, the gospel, we understand our guilt, we understand the grace of God in Christ that fills that gap of our guilt, and then that leads us to a life of gratitude, where we want to live in a way that would please God, because we love Him. There's no more powerful motivation than love. Now, here's the deal. If you only think that you're a little sinner, how much grace does a little sinner need? Just a little bit of grace, right? And if you only need a little bit of grace, then how much gratitude will there be in your life? Very little. Very little. I mean, obeying God still is kind of a task, still kind of a burden. And if you, if you feel like obeying God is, is really more of a burden, then really the problem is you don't understand sin. Because the bigger you understand sin, the more you understand I need a big gospel. And when you realize how big the gospel is, your gratitude increases. And this is what happens over the course of your Christian life, that you actually, as Barry was saying, there's this strange dynamic where in many ways you are practically subduing sin in your life, and yet you're more and more aware of sin than you've ever been before. And you can join Paul in saying, I feel like the chief of sinners. Um, because you understand how pervasive sin is, how deep it is, and how it just penetrates into everything we do. Uh, but as we understand that, we understand how big the gospel is, and how the gospel actually is bigger than all of our sin, this is designed by God to lead us to a grateful attitude where we, we actually appreciate the kindness of God, that you would love someone like me. I, if you don't get to the point where you can honestly say, I can't believe God loves someone like me, 
we need to someday get there. I hope I get there someday. I'm full of myself. I, I don't realize how badly I need the gospel in so many ways. And finally one day when I die, I'll understand just how deep my sin was and just how big the gospel was. And for all eternity, I'll be glorying in the gratitude of the Father's grace. Well, the way this is supposed to work is that we live out this grace now. We live out this gratitude now, and we live it out in such a compelling way that the culture notices this. This is what Peter is talking about. And we need to ask ourselves, are we any different from the culture? And if so, in what ways? Um, and are we different in significant ways? Um, what would that actually look like? A pollster gave a caution. You recognize the Weasley boys? Okay, which, which is which? They never tell you. Which is which? Okay, now let's make it harder. One is a believer and one's not a believer. Which is which? Fred, George. Well, here's my point. They're twins, right? And the problem often, with, with according to George Barna, uh, he says the stumbling block for the church is not its theology, but its failure to apply what it believes in compelling ways. That is George Barna's way of saying, as you are living as aliens... By and large, the church is not living in a compelling way that people say, wow, that is different. That's, that person, there's something going on in their life that is powerful that I must understand. And uh, Barna's observation is that is not the case. Um, he, uh, he did some polling. Uh, how many people uh, donated to a nonprofit? Believers, unbelievers. And by the way, he has a pretty strict definition of what a believer is in terms of somebody who uh, says, and I, I accept evangelical truths. 29% uh, of evangelicals donated to a nonprofit. 27% of unbelievers donated to a nonprofit. Statistically the same. I mean, it's shocking. 29% of believers gave money to a church? No difference. No difference in the way that we spend our money. Uh, now this one really gets me. Tried to influence someone's opinion about an issue. If we're not trying to share Christ with people and to see a change in their beliefs about Christ with people, what are we trying to do? There's this thing called the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is all about Jesus, right? Actually, more unbelievers, although it's this statistical dead heat, tried to change someone's opinion about an issue than self-stated believers. Are we any different? Are we just twins? When people look at us, do they see nothing different whatsoever? And if they do see something different, do they see something that is spiritually significant that is different? Because, see, I'm from a different generation. And I was from a generation that said, well, let's uh, use window dressing to look different. I'm the generation of Mr. Manners for a more polite life. 
And so uh, I was of a generation that had all kinds of rules about how Christians were supposed to look. So in order we would be different. And uh, so the Christians uh, didn't smoke and didn't drink and didn't dance and didn't play cards and didn't go to the theater. And that was how the world would look and say, wow, you're very different. Now, praise God, we seem to have gotten away from a lot of those things because, again, we want the Bible to be our guide. We want God's Word to be our guide, to listen to His voice and not just the voice of Mr. Manners. Here's the polite way to live. Here's the genteel Christian way to live. We refer to that sometimes as fundamentalism or moralism. And I grew up in a generation that was full of that. Praise God, I want to just let you know how excited I am that you, most of you, are not growing up in that world. Don't go back to it. It's a horrible world. It's a, it's a hellish world. Because it tells us that we're good because we keep little checklists of things to do. It tells us that we're good because I can go to bed with all of my boxes checked instead of telling me that my hope is in Jesus and his gospel. The gospel that brings a different kind of transformation. The kind of transformation Jesus calls for, where I actually love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, and I learn to love my neighbor as myself. That's the kind of change that the gospel is supposed to bring. Not superficial stuff. Not stupid stuff. Stuff that counts for eternity. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, one day Jesus is coming back and he's going to visit. And every man, woman, and child is going to stand before his throne. And there will be a judgment on that day. And on that day that he visits us, we want, we want to live a life that we're not ashamed of. That the grace of the gospel is, is sunk deep into our lives. And we're actually living our lives out with gratitude. That's the goal. Do we inspire curiosity in the watching world? Think about that. Oftentimes, again, what causes curiosity is not the right thing. Um, I don't know if we have that, uh, did that video downloaded. I want to show us something here in closing. Um, it's a video. Some of you may have seen it. Some of you haven't seen it. Um, but... Uh, somebody uh, referred to this as a redemptive inter interruption. And uh, it's just a, a YouTube video of a scene that took place in a train station. And uh, where people, in this one scene, I'm not going to let it play out for itself, and it'll speak for itself, and then we'll, we'll go back uh, to the next thing, whatever that is, after the video. It shows us both at the same time what it means uh, to be a force for love and truth in the world around us in a way that's very compelling, and yet in a way that is also very naturally connected to the people in the world around you that you know. Uh, what does it mean uh, to be a living temple, living stones knit together in a kind of harmony and yet integrated into the world in such a way that people see that harmony and see that beauty because of the kind of love uh, that we have. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. See if it works.